0: We each have a, a sober responsibility to to reconstruct in our own minds what really happened there on a the hill outside Jerusalem, on a day in April, on a Friday afternoon, you know, 2,000 years ago or whatever. Uh, we have, a, a, as I say, a solemn duty to try to reconstruct that in our own minds. And so I want to just focus on, on the account of the crucifixion here from John 19 and just comment really on, on a few of my own meditations on some of the, the points that I think are, are unique to, to John's record really just to get you thinking because this is something so personal that as we each come before the one who loved me and gave himself for me we have to do this personally, it cannot be done for us really by, by anybody so these are just my uh, my reflections and we we'll, will uh, just go as, uh, for half an hour or so as long as um, I, I have and let see, see what I can bring out but um, really it's you that has to do this it's you that has to read John 19 and bring it out for yourself and think all the time that he did this for me I know he did it for all of us but the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me okay, verse 5 <clears throat> behold the man well, here's the guy and it would have been said in I, I think in, the, in a mocking sort of way, look you're making this huge issue over this fella. look at him, he's pathetic, here's the guy, here's your fellow. Um, and one theme that I see, particularly here in John 19, is that so much that is recorded here uh, as having happened to Jesus, he would have actually taken encouragement from, because he had a mind that was full of God's Word because he was the Word in that sense made flesh. Now, behold the man. This is Zechariah 6 verse 12 where there's a priest representing Jesus crowned with silver and gold who was introduced to Israel with the same phrase, behold the man. And as soon as Pilate said, behold the man, I mean, Jesus, his mind of him back in Zechariah 6 verse 12. So I am the priest crowned with silver and gold in glory being presented to Israel. And you can look at quite a few of the uh, things that are recorded here in, in, in John 19 and see the same, how the very things he was mocked with could have been interpreted by him as a kind of an encouragement, for example, hyssop. Um, the, the use of hyssop later on, well this fulfilled the, the, the types of course of the, uh, the Passover lamb. Uh, with uh, with with hyssop, um, or how verse twenty he was crucified near to the city. It's Deuteronomy twenty-one verse three. The same uh, same phrase is used um, uh, about another Old Testament ritual uh, that covered covered Israel's sin. So all the time, that which was understood by this world in a negative sense was understood by the Lord Jesus in the context of of God's word, uh, sort of encouraging him all the way, that really this was all working out to bring God's word to its final conclusion and fulfillment in him and in his death. So where does that leave us? Well, you know there's some times, it may be half an hour in your life, or it may be a day or a whole period of your life where it really seems that life could not go worse. And yet, actually, in those moments, if you perceive them, in those periods, if you perceive it, you really see the hand of God. And that hand of God is so apparent and obvious, I think, to those who have a mind to see it. And out of this, you see the the usual great paradox that is through all all of God's word, that somehow, out of evil, God brings good, and in the midst of evil, God is there. Evil is not because God has turned away. It's not because there's you know, a devil up there who's now just temporarily taking control of our lives. It's not because God has, uh, I don't know, turned the other way and is looking somewhere else. In the midst of all that grief, he is very much there if we perceive it. If we perceive it. And I think this is the, the value of reading God's word every day, even if there are parts of his word you don't understand, you don't get it, you think this is pointless. Those ideas suddenly click into place, they are the dots that suddenly become joined up in the midst of sudden calamity and, and crisis in our lives. Uh, verse 9, the AV says, whence art thou? And that the idea is, who's your father, from where are you? This was absolutely crucial in, in their society. You were defined not so much by who you were, but who your father was and Jesus is silent. Now there's a rabbinic writing, Judition, uh, four 4.2, which says that a fatherless person must remain silent when asked, where are you from? And I think that's one reason why Jesus remained silent. He refused to call himself the son of Joseph even though that's how he was understood, Jesus ben Joseph, that's how he would have been understood. And B.P. E. Sanders, and he is a guy who, an academic who wrote an awful lot about um, first century Galilean society. And he makes the point that anyone who was categorized as fatherless would have also been categorized or put in the category of a a sinner especially as they would have understood his mother as a a prostitute basically and Jesus as the son of adultery and those who are in this fatherless category E.P. Sanders makes the point um, that they would it's written that they would not have been counted as a child of God nor as a son of Abraham and so the fact that he insisted on his human fatherlessness meant that he was treated as a sinner as not the son of God and as not the seed of Abraham when in fact he was in supremacy all those things and I think this lays the background for how the centurion at the end of all this says truly this was the son of God he's making the connection with the the whole argument which was who is this person and where is he from now, there are times in our lives when basically we have that same question. Where are you from? Whose are you? And whose are we? You know, it's very easy to just exist in this world as a, a normal, okay kind of person in the eyes of, of people without actually letting on whose we are and whom we serve. And this, I think, is our challenge there. This is how we translate, how we uh, bring the... Uh, the crucifixion of Jesus right up into daily life, because we are of course asked to carry this cross. There must be elements of his sufferings there which are seen in our own sufferings. And so what I think this means is that when we face the question, maybe implicitly rather than explicitly, whose are you? Are you really one of us, just like the rest of us in this world, or are you something different? Are you someone special? The answer has to be, you know, I am not of you, I am different, and if you consider me, however you consider me, then, you know, go ahead. Now then, we uh, go on then, um, verse 13. I don't like uh, sort of emphasising too much translation, but I, I will at this point. Um, It says that in most uh, translations, that Pilate brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat on a place that is called the pavement. Now, that can be translated that Pilate sat him, that is Jesus, sat Jesus down in the judgment seat. And in fact, the Gospel of Peter, although it's not inspired... Uh, 3 verse 7 actually says this happened, just a quote from there they clothed him with purple and sat him on a chair of judgment saying judge justly O king of Israel, of course sarcastically, so then the point is that he was being uh, set up as the judge and the fact that he sat down on the pavement, this of course uh, would have been seen by Jesus as connected with the, the sapphire pavement of Exodus 24 where God is uh, manifest in, in glory in his, final, in his uh, manifestation at the time of Moses. So Jesus had said, talking about his upcoming death, now is the judgment of this world. And so he understood his death there on the cross as really the judgment of this world. And what I think that means in practice is that, insofar as we come before his his death his, him there, we come as it were before him uh, in the day of judgment, because insofar as we come before him there, our thoughts and our feelings I think, uh, if we truly as I say reconstruct in our minds accurately in that sense how he was there, uh, and we really feel ourselves before him. We have a foretaste, I think, of our feelings at the Day of Judgment. And this is why when we ask ourselves, so what should I be thinking about at the breaking of bread? Should I be making a list of my own sins, or should I be thinking about him there? Well, it's one and the same, because if you're thinking about him there, you quite naturally will examine yourself. And I think you you see that very clearly, really, in in 1 Corinthians 11, in the passage about the breaking of bread, where the language of of judgment is, is used repeatedly, that we judge ourselves there. It is as if we come before our day of judgment, because you can't be passive if you really imagine Jesus suffering for you and you standing in front of him. And so then... I go with that translation that says that Pilate sat Jesus down on the uh, on the judgment seat, and there really uh, God was revealed in in that sense as manifested. Verse 19. So we come to verse 19 where. Uh, Pilate writes a title in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, it's noted there that it was also written in in Hebrew, in verse 20. Now, if you write those words in Hebrew, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, the first letter of each of those words, and remember we're writing from right to left, Uh, would have spelt the the sacred name, Y-H-W-H, or however you want to uh, transcribe it, transliterate it. So then, I think that Pilate had been sort of outplayed here, really, and he was trying in a very primitive way to kind of hit back at the Jews, and he knew this was going to irritate them, and that's why they come scampering to him and say, take it down and he says what I have written I have written and I think he's alluding there to the Yahweh name I am who I am I have done I will do what I will do I have done what I have done so I think it was a cheap shot really from Pilate at the Jews but the point is uh, Jesus died with the name written above his head now he had said in John 17:26 in prophecy of his death, I have declared unto them your name, and I will declare it. Now, God's name is essentially his characteristics. You remember Exodus 34, God's name is declared in terms of his characteristics. I am a God full of uh, mercy, uh, justice, judgment of sin, grace, forgiveness, patience, etc. So then, God's essential characteristics are his name. And Jesus says, "I have declared unto them your name; that is, His perfect character had reflected God's, and will declare it." Well, I think that that will declare it is referring to the uh, the crucifixion. But what's the point of it? He says, going on in John 17:26, "I have declared unto them your name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them, and I in them." So that by Perceiving that there, in the naked body of Jesus, the essential name and essence of God was declared. This cannot be beheld by us, I think, passively. We have to respond. And how do you respond? You respond by love. So that the love, wherewith you have loved me, may be in them and of course there's other prophecies of this, I mean in the great uh, prophecy of the crucifixion in Psalm 22 verse 22 I will declare your name unto my brethren so then this whole idea of what goes on in Psalm 22 31 to declare his righteousness this declaration of the essence of God was ultimately seen in, in the cross so this man, this more than man in a sense who who died there uh, absolutely humiliated, not recognized, not accepted and yet earnestly seeking for the repentance and the forgiveness and the salvation of everyone around him even the the thief next to him, Father forgive them for they know not what they do uh, etc. That is the essence of God that God is manifest in Jesus, God's salvation, that he wants to save us. And our biggest item, I guess, in our our deepest psychology is our fear, our vague suspicion that I may not be accepted in the last day. But the more you look at the cross, not of course just at the physical cross, but perceive the whole wonder of it all and the declaration of God's name there, I think you are inevitably comforted, you have to be, that God wants to save us. I'm sort of delving a little bit more kind of doctrinally or theologically into the whole uh, thing about the, the crucifixion and, you know, why? Why was all this necessary? Could God not have saved people any way he wanted? How he wanted, when he wanted, of course he could there's no question he could have done that it wasn't that God's hands were tied and he had no way out apart from through the blood sacrifice of his son but this, this is obviously nonsense so then why? now the answer is of course multifactorial as to why the cross but I think one big part of it was that God so wanted to persuade us of the certainty of his salvation and his love for us because he loves us so much And he has this desire to persuade us, we who doubt, to persuade us of the reality of that love, that that is for real. And so, I keep saying that we must look at the cross. Um, But, of course, what I mean is that we must perceive there the declaration of God's name. I I don't mean, of course, in the sort of Roman Catholic or Orthodox sense of, you know, putting uh, two pieces of wood in a cross, in a T-shaped sort of uh, around the house kind of thing, but to seriously meditate about Him there. Now reading through this record of the crucifixion, especially here in John 19, just make a note sometime of how many adjectives describing words are used. There is virtually none, and I think that that is because for one thing, this is, to me, the stamp of inspiration, because any any human attempt to describe the the crucifixion would have uh, inevitably started using adjectives. He felt stifling hot, things like that. But uh, there's none of that here. He is just presented as he is, and this, in my own mind, connects with another thing I observe. But. What to us are the most obvious Old Testament prophecies of the crucifixion? For example, Isaiah 53 verse 7, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. I mean, if I were writing this record, all the way through John 19, I would have been sort of nudging the audience that, hey, this was fulfilling this, that and the other. And you know, that's not really dumb. The most obvious prophecies are not quoted why? I I think that that there's a spiritual culture in the whole record that is beyond that sort of thing. This is the Son of God dying for us presented just exactly as it was and that is why it is so powerful. So then we are left to, uh, as I say, to put together the whole thing in in our own minds and yet of course the the Old Testament prophecies do add so much depth uh, to it I mean Isaiah 52 verse 14 that the Lord's face is marred more than that of any other so much so that those who saw him looked away I mean if every face tells a story I mean his pain on his face was quite beyond words why is this emphasized in Isaiah? Uh, I think because It was not just the physical sufferings and I would of course never wish to underestimate the the awful physical pain of the whole process but the whole pain of rejection that he's dying for people who had rejected him and the whole pain of realising sin and what our sin really implies. So then he was lifted up Onto that cross, and I, if I be lifted up, John 12:32, will draw all men unto me. So then, there's a, a play in John's uh, John's writing on this idea of lifting up, because the idea of glory in Hebrew thought was connected with being lifted up. So when they lifted up Jesus on the cross, and the body actually was lifted up, presumably with the help of ladders. Uh, onto the, uh, sorry, the actual cross, I mean, was actually lifted up presumably with the help of ladders uh, with Jesus hanging upon it and, and sort of put into the ground and stabilised in the ground that many people would have seen in the crowd and thought, well, that's it. This is it. No, he wasn't who he said he was. This is the ultimate shame. He's been lifted up in crucifixion. And yet the very nadir, the very low point was in fact the high point. There in God's eyes, Jesus was there in glory. And so this again works out in our lives, those kind of incidents and situations where it seems that we are, as it were, pushed right down. You know, a man left by his wife and his kids having had a one time successful prominent life and there he is dying in poverty in one room of cancer with no money for painkillers hanging on to his faith, looking forward to the resurrection, feeling himself into the sufferings of Jesus, knowing that as I suffer with him so I will rise with him. You know that is the lifting up in the eyes of this world in the eyes of human society that's a man at the end it's a man in the lowest possible uh, sort of depth, but in God's eyes, that man's face is shining in glory. And so, we, that may be an extreme example, but we we see that in essence in our lives. And if you don't see that, then probably something's wrong in in the way you're living. So then the. Uh, they crucified him and again another thought which okay is not directly here in John but it seems to me that they crucified him naked because in Hebrews it's emphasized about the shame of the cross in uh, Psalm 69 there's no fewer than five verses in that prophecy of the crucifixion that talk about um, his shame and shame is connected with nakedness in the Bible if we recrucify crucify the Son of God, Hebrews 6, verse 6, we put him to an open or to a naked shame. We re-crucify him naked, is what Hebrews 6, verse 6 is saying. Now, it seems that they usually did not crucify people naked. But uh, Melito of Sardis, writing in the 2nd century, admittedly, uh, talks about how naked crucifixion and what he calls being denuded upon the cross were the uh, was reserved for those that they really wanted to make suffer to the end and to humiliate ultimately incidentally the earliest portrayals of the crucified Jesus such on carved gemstones actually feature him uh, naked it seems now from there I am led to the reflection that Jesus was uh, tortured, was made to suffer, more than usual for crucifixion victims. The level of hatred that the Jews had for him would uh, make that sort of uh, logical. There's also a passage in the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2, uh, verses 12 to 20, which of course is not inspired, but it, uh, it, it has something that's very relevant to this, about what to do to a false messiah. Uh, he who claims to, to have knowledge of God, and calls himself the Son of the Lord, this is exactly it Jesus, who called himself son of, son of God, he who boasts of having God as his Father, he whose way of life is not like other men's, let us see if what he says is true. Let us observe what kind of end he himself will have. If the virtuous man is God's Son, God will take his part and rescue him from the clutches of his enemies. Let us test him with cruelty and with torture, and thus explore this gentleness of his, and put his endurance to the full proof. Let us condemn him to a shameful death, since he will be looked after, we have his word for it. Now that was written before the time of Jesus, and it seems that that... uh, attitude would have been uh, it was exactly the attitude of the Jews to Jesus and so they would have crucified him uh, and made him suffer to the absolute extreme that's why I think it was a naked crucifixion and although I don't like to say this I I will say it because we are facing ultimate reality here I've also read and I mean it's only what I've read um, that those that uh, they chose to to make suffer to the maximum through crucifixion were actually nailed through their testicles to uh, to the tree your pain in whatever form it may be physical, mental, emotional your pain and my pain is nothing compared to what he went through and again, why did he suffer so much? Why did this way, why was this way uh, made for us? It seems so that none of us could ever say, ever, nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody knows how I feel. That may be true on this earth. Maybe nobody does. But there is someone, a real person in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who does know and who can identify. And that is why the whole, I think, uh, intensity of the whole thing as well of course uh, as his whole life but I think crowned really uh, with uh, with the crucifixion experience was so that nobody now can ever say he does not know what I'm going through, nobody knows, I am totally alone his suffering there is the end to all the feelings of let's say existential loneliness that I am utterly alone Uh, because we are not this huge distance between God and us has now been has now been finished because really he there absolutely experienced the essence of mentally and physically everything that we might suffer. I close with one uh, one more thought and it 's the uh, the fact that his mother was there. It seems that it was not allowed for sympathizers to stand next to the the cross of the crucified and as even uh, Tacitus records how people who insisted on doing that could themselves be picked up and crucified so there was this crowd watching and then there's the no man's land between the crowd and the cross and the soldiers guarding the cross uh, to sort of stop people coming over and standing by the cross and so therefore there's a huge significance in the fact that verse 25, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, uh, and Mary Magdalene. It seems to me that they had said, "Okay, we love him, and we will identify with him. And if you are going to crucify us with him, well, go ahead. But we will stand with him." And I think they did that with no idea of reward, that I'll do this because I'm going to pick up a future reward for it. I think they did it because they were motivated quite simply by their love for him. And it should be the same with us, that there should be something magnetic about him that says to us, I will not stand with this world. I will not be in the crowd. I will identify with him, come what may, whether or not I will be saved, although I believe we should be confident we will be saved, but uh, whether or not I will be saved, that, that is a different issue, it's a different category, that is not in mind here, that is not in view. But I will identify with him to the end, come what may. That is what we should be inspired to feel and to act like from seeing him there. And I think it is his utter grace whereby he basically says go home Um, it's as if he's saying thank you but I don't want you to actually have to go through it I understand you're willing but that's okay go home I'll face the darkness totally alone and so if it had been me at 33 years old I would have wanted my mother standing by me at the end Especially in Jesus' case, because everybody thought that she'd had a fling with some, some fella. Nobody really thought that he was a son of God. They all had that niggling suspicion that really some some young girl, some teenage kid says that, Oh yeah, I'm pregnant because some angel came to see me and I swear I swear I never slept with my boyfriend. I swear, I swear I didn't I didn't I didn't do it, I didn't do it. I got pregnant because well like God made me pregnant. Everyone would have been, I, yeah, and even those who loved Jesus, I think there would have, inevitably, was this niggling doubt. But as far as Jesus was concerned, there was only one woman, one person on the whole earth, who actually did not have that doubt, and that was his mum. He knew that she, of course, knew the truth about the whole thing, and so to have her with him. The one who really could relate to him and identify with him I mean, this would have been a great comfort to face your end, you know that good night, uh, not alone. No- nobody wants to face that final end alone. Um, and the fact that he did this, I think shows his uh, shows his grace and his sensitivity, and also I think his willingness to completely identify with us. It's in the same category as why he didn't take the painkiller. Just so that nobody could say ah yeah well I suffered this without a painkiller but well of course he had a painkiller well he had his mum with him at the end. I didn't. No. Nobody can ever say or even dare to think things like that. If you feel that your loneliness is crushing and absolutely unexplainable because it's so, so, so deeply felt by you okay that's all valid and as it is uh, but Jesus knew that and I have this picture in my mind of John walking away with Mary and of course Jesus lifted up kind of watching them he could have done nothing else but watch them it seems to me and Mary looking back one last time I don't know if that's what happens but that's what I mean by reconstructing in your own mind what it could have been and what in some sense it was and He did that for you and me the Son of God who loved me and who gave Himself for me He declared the absolute essence of God He declared the name so that the love that God's hand for his son might be seen in us.